Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Happy Thursday to you. I have a treat for you today. Today, my guest is Jacqueline Tully. Um, We have a lot. We're going to talk about a lot of things because Jackie has uh, probably been involved in some of the most famous cases around the San Francisco Bay Area. So, but I'm not going to introduce her yet because um, we need to deal with some um, remembrances of people that have recently passed. And one that was just this week is uh, famous attorney Pat McGinnis from Florida. Uh, Pat was a public defender when he represented a young man, a young African-American man who was charged with murder. And uh, he was in his teens, and he was taken out by two rogue police officers out into the woods and beaten until he confessed. Well, he didn't do it. And later, the real killer confessed, and he was released, and uh, he's living, from what I understand, a happy life. But Pat was a real champion uh, for that young man and for all the cases that he represented while he's in the uh, while he was in the public defender's office in Florida. So I want to remember him and his his brother Brian, his twin brother Brian, who's a private investigator and also the, the family. Um, then of course, which we're going to talk about with Jackie, Jack Palladino. I want to talk about Jack. And then we've also lost David Fetchheimer recently, another very very well-known famous gumshoe in the Bay Area. And then we can't forget, even though it's been a while, David Sullivan, who is another San Francisco Bay Area guy who, who's passed on. So, Jackie, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Francie. So, um, Jackie and I were just talking offline that um, we saw each other years ago. Uh, I don't remember when it was. Um, she seems to remember <laughs> a period of time when we were together, but I don't even know where that was. And I, do you know what year that was, Jackie? You know, I, I, I don't. I mean, I started uh, working in the PI world in 1988 when I took a job with Tink Thompson, and I worked with him for about a year, <clears throat> and then, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> went over and worked with Jack Pal- Palladino for four. And I think it was it was around the time that uh, Nancy Pemberton and Eric Mason and I started our own agency, which was around 1990. And one of the things we did is we tried to gather together a group of women investigators to meet and talk about our own particular professional concerns. Do you, and that's that's what I remember. Yes. Yeah, so I'm <clears throat> I'm thinking it may have been yeah. It's coming back to me now. <laughs> yeah, I, and, well, it could uh, have been earlier. <laughs> no, I yeah, I think it was probably the '90s, sometime in the '90s. But at any rate, it's a pleasure to reconnect with you, Jackie. Um, I, you you had such an amazing career. Uh, let's just talk about Jack for a little bit, because Jack, unfortunately, for those of you that that don't know, uh, Jack Palladino was quite a famous guy in the Bay Area. Um, he uh, trained a lot of investigators. I mean, many investigators that I know worked for Jack at one point or another. Uh, and he was unfortunately uh, assaulted, and he died. He uh, was assaulted, I guess. I, from what I understand, um, they took his camera from him. He was on yeah, the street. Yeah, I think that. I, yeah. Yeah, he was on yeah, the street I I, by his house. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, as I recall, what um, he had walked outside of his house, and he lived, he lived in a, a big, huge house that had formerly been the, uh, I think it was the I Magnan Mansion owned by the people who owned I Magnans, <clears throat> and he had his 
offices in there, and he had his house, and he walked outside of his house, and he had a very fancy camera around his neck. He was a huge camera aficionado, and I don't know, a a, a car drove by, and it appeared as if somebody jumped out of the car and tried to grab and take the camera, and he resisted them. Isn't that what you That's my understanding as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, he fought, so it, yeah. He fought them, he, and and the con- the consequence of that, I gather, is that um, when they took him to the hospital, and he still had the camera, and the police were able to arrest two suspects because he had managed to take their pictures. <laughs> In <laughs> true Jack style, actually. Uh, and down to down to the. Absolutely. <clears throat> it's unbelievable, really, that that happened the way it did. But I read a quote in the newspaper from his wife, Sandra Sutherland, who was a excellent PI in her own right, who said that she went to the hospital, Jack was unconscious, and said to him, honey, you cracked the case. <laughs> <laughs> It, it really is true Jack style. So, Jackie, what was it like working for him? I, I just, uh, I, I, can't, I, mean, I, can't, I can't put my head around that. How is it? Yeah, well, you knew him, right? Well, I only, no, I only was acquainted with him. I, didn't, I can't say I knew him. He, well, he was, uh, it, it is true, as you said in your intro, that he was responsible for many investigators being able to leave his employ and go out into the world and open their own businesses. And, and the, one of the reasons for that is because he had a pretty big operation and he, he had a number of people working from him, for him all the time. And he was very, his template of how to run a successful PI agency had been very, very, very carefully um, evolved out over a, a long period of time. And the consequence of that for people like myself, when I left him with Eric Mason and we hooked up with Nancy Pemberton, we, we had the bare bones structure of how to run an agency. And hmm. it, it made the difference really in our being able to be successful or not. And the other side to it, of course, was the content arena. And Jack had a very strong vision about how he liked to run his cases. He was extremely difficult to work with. He was mm-hmm. bombastic. He was um, he was authoritarian. He was crass. Um, he was unapologetic in his harsh treatment of people. And he was, he was all about the results. Now, mm-hmm. the, the other thing, though, is he, was, he never wanted anybody to break the law. He wanted, he wanted to be creative, but he was straight all the time. And I came to realize later on in all the years that we ran our own agency that it really was critical that that concept, that idea, especially in the world of PIs, because as you know, Francie, it's, it can be very murky. Yep. And you can be out there trying to do something and accomplish something. And sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes you can step over the line and he, in, he, he said he would fire you if he ever found out. And people lived in fear of that. Now, the other thing about him that was very interesting, I mean, I remember that I I had I was somewhat anti-authoritarian. I I was a film critic for ten years. I had a master's of fine arts. I was not groomed <laughs> to, to live in the world of the PI. And the first big fight I had with him, he called me into his office. He had a big office with a lot of very fancy things in it. He had these great big huge, very expensive fountain pens that he would sit and twirl in his fingers. And he always had on a Hugo Boss suit, always. 
and he told me he wanted me to work on this case. It was a sexual assault case, and I was, you know, I was pretty raw. I'd spent a year working with Tank Thompson, but uh, I had been, I had come over from the lefty world of movie criticism, and so I said to him, "Are we representing the defendant, the rapist?" And he said. Uh, why do you ask? Yeah. He said, why do you ask? And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm just not sure how I feel about working on that, this case. And he said, I thought momentarily that he was really interested in hearing what I had to say. He said, oh, sit down, tell me about it. So I sat down and I said, well, here are my feelings about it. And he cut me off and he leaned over and he said, no one in the world of private investigation cares about your feelings. Never. And he said, and if you have any qualms about working on this case, I want you to clear out all your things and be gone by the end of the day. And I never want to see you again because you obviously do not know what the job is. And I, I was, I was chastened to be sure. And, but the other side to Jack is that we then had this amazing conversation about what his vision of a private investigation was. And he used to say to me, we are peeling the onion on civilization. And we, yeah. it is difficult, but we get to see layer after layer after layer. And your job is to collect information and learn. And that was it. So, um, you could always learn things from him. And he also did things, like this was back in the late 80s, early 90s. He paid for all the women in the office to have mammograms. He paid hmm. if you were trying to quit smoking. He paid for you to be hypnotized. He, he was, he was a, in a, just a phenomenal contradiction of, of, of character. And um, you he was unforgettable, really, to work for. And I, when I left, I used to go down to these, like the death penalty uh, seminars down in Monterey, Francie, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, all the people who had worked for Jack would gather like magnets, and it was like a, a battered person's conference. <laughs> and we would talk about how we had been beaten around, but all of the people had deep respect for him and I, I, I had a very, uh, I developed very warm feelings for him, you know, once I was able to, um, do my own thing. It, it was constricting, but it was enlightening and it was in many ways the most important job I ever had because it set me up completely in my career. You know, it's so interesting to hear you say that because, that your experience is almost identical to everyone I've ever talked to that's worked for Jack, <laughs> which is just yeah. amazing. So uh, consistency, yeah. for sure. And so what was the model, Jackie, that you took to Mason, Tully, and Pemberton from, from learning from Jack well, to run an agency? This- yeah, the thing that, that uh, and I think this is a, historically, this is um, something that sets the San Francisco PI, and by San Francisco PI, I mean Bay Area PI, but the San Francisco, the mythology begins with the San Francisco PI, obviously. And mm-hmm. the thing that sets this group apart um, is that, the PIs, the people who came to work for Hal Lipset, David Fetchheimer, mm. Tink Thompson, Jack Palladino, the people who got jobs with these guys were people who were, they were not in law enforcement. They, they were, by and large, highly educated, anti-authority, um, very skilled at writing and thinking. And when I worked for Jack, the people who I worked alongside of, my fellow PIs, one of them, Stephanie Voss, who had worked as mm. in Hong Kong for the uh, Washington Examiner, um, 
we had we had a, a fellow who was a, a, a math graduate of Columbia. Um, we had a fellow Michael who was a magazine writer. I had I was a film critic and was still when I when I worked when I got a job with Jack I was still freelancing for the L.A. Times and the San Francisco Examiner and mm. um, um, so. It was very so that that he he valued writing because he his written reports that were sent out to the clients were like the most important part of the work for him in a way. The other thing is his persistence. Now you know better than anybody, you've been in the business a long time that PI work is persistence times 10. Mm-hmm. And you, you can never let go uh, of that because if you don't have it, you cannot do the work. And I remember once going to a seminar that Hal Lipset gave. It was just a talk on the Cal campus. And I went over to, he was an elder statesman at the time, and somebody stood up, some students stood up and asked him what the most critical characteristic a person could have if they wanted to be a PI. And he said, they ha- you have to be able to talk to people and listen to people, and that mm-hmm. above all else. And Jack fostered that notion with his ideas of persistence um, but if you couldn't write, he wasn't going to hire you. Interesting. So um, I want to go back because, you know, a lot of our listeners may not even know who these people are that we're talking about. So, uh, well, maybe how they would know how Lipset. Now, I was an embryonic PI when Hal Lipset passed away. I think, you know, that was probably in the early 90s, I think. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. And... Hal was uh, probably best known for his book, The Bug and the Martini Olive. But he was yeah. also he, he also was the reason that we now have uh, in California two party recording because of his yeah. book and the martini olive. <laughs> because he uh, was very proud of it and he and he took it to the legislature and they mm, they didn't like it a whole lot. Uh, that, right. that you could record somebody without their knowledge. So that's why in California, and I think we're, we may be the only state, I'm not sure, that uh, requires both parties on an on a interview or a call to have uh, both pe- people aware of the call and agree to it, agree to have it recorded. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. so that's... <laughs> Unfortunately, that's often what happens when we come up with these innovative ideas to get to do what we want, and then it comes back to bite us, uh, even though even if it's legal at the time. <laughs> um, right. But um, and then Tink Thompson. Let's talk about Tink Thompson a little bit because I've never met Tink Thompson, but he was uh, he was shown to me when I first started out as th- this is the guy that's the standard of investigation. So talk about him a well, little bit. T- I will. Tink, Tink Thompson was a, a really interesting, he is a really interesting guy, and he got into private investigation because he fell in love with the mythology. He was in love with Dashiell Hammett, mm-hmm. and he was a full professor of philosophy working at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. He was a Yale graduate. His roommate was the celebrated author Calvin Trillin. He was a Navy SEAL. He was a small guy. He couldn't have even been six feet, but he was a very determined, brilliant. He wrote a book called, after the Kennedy assassination, Tink became very uh, obsessive about it and wrote a book called Six Seconds in Dallas, which was about bullet trajectory because Tink had a lot of theories about the Kennedy assassination. And he came out to California one year on a, I think it was a Fulbright or a Guggenheim, 
with his wife and his two small kids. And he told me that he fell in love immediately with the California light. And he mm-hmm. never wanted to, he never wanted to go home. And he basically didn't. And he, mm-hmm. as I said, he was enamored uh, of the, um, of this historical mythology around the gumshoe. And he met Hal Lipset, and he met David Fetchheimer, and he took a job with Hal, and he he did some work with Hal, and he did some work with David, and he then started his own own agency. And when I met him, I was uh, I had no idea whatsoever that I would ever fall into this work. I was introduced to him. And at a party or something, I don't remember, but he said at the time I was writing, working half time at the examiner, writing about movies, and I had been doing it for 10 years and I was tired of daily journalism and I was restless. And he said to me one day, he called me, he said, come down to my office. And I went down to his office and it was on Union Street. And you walked up a flight of stairs. It was like the classic gumshoe office. There were two <laughs> two rooms, and it had a huge view out toward the Golden Gate Bridge. And we sat and we talked for quite a while. And he loved, you know, he was, at the time, he was writing his memoir, which Little Brown published called Tink. And um, we talked about that. And then he said, why don't you come and work for me? And I said to him, I don't really, I don't, I'm, I don't read mystery books. I don't read detective <laughs> books. I don't really know what you do. He said, oh, he said, don't worry about that. He said, you can write. He said, I'll, I'll fill in the rest for you. You can, I'll show you what, you, what to do. And that's how, that's how I started. And he, he was an amazing man. Full of, he is an amazing man. I haven't seen him in a while, but. And he was in love with Hal and David, and then I spent a lot of time with the three of them as they would they would get together at night and drink and talk and and um, you know there there is a whole male world of PIs, yes, but there, there is. is also a, a quieter but no less potent world of women PIs. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, and and that's fascinating. And and you know, when I'll sh- I should reach out and see if Tink will come on the show because I'd love to talk to him. The other one is David Fetchheimer. Of course, these guys are just, um, they were the epitome of a good, thorough, ethical private investigators. They set the standard uh, for the rest of us. Well, I think it's true. I, I You know, and I think that we probably, we may not, have well, I certainly didn't know that. I I didn't know how lucky I was mm. to have literally fallen off a turnip truck <laughs> into into Tink Thompson's backyard, and that's really what happened. I didn't know him. I didn't know who Hal Lipset was. I I I barely read Dashiell Hammett. I didn't know. I just mm. thought it sounded like an interesting thing to do for a year. He said, come and work for me for a year, and if you don't like it, you can go back to journalism. And, you know, I thought, well, that that seems like fun. I mean, that seemed like an interesting idea, and it was a little unnerving, but I didn't know at the time that, I mean, Kink had this Ph.D. in philosophy and had written a couple of books, and David was a literary lion. Uh-huh. And Hal was Hal, right? Hal, Hal was yeah. the old, the old guard, right. uh, blustery and unpleasant, but really interesting. And they invented the, this genre of San, the San Francisco PI. They really did. They they yeah. used as their core base Dashiell Hammett, and then they they reconfigured the image and the stereotype. And, and as you know, many of the people who came after them um, used a lot of those templates. 
all of us did, without maybe even knowing it. Jack was a renegade. He, he, he and Tink despised one another. He and Fetchheimer <laughs> despised one another. And the reason for that, unsurprisingly, that is, so, is, is so because of a woman. That era. <laughs> yes, and it's because of a woman, because David Fetchheimer had been very interested in Sandra, and she married Jack, and David and Jack could barely, could barely conceal their contempt for one another thereafter. And, um, and Jack always had to do things his own way. But he was a part of that. He, he just wasn't of their ilk. He was very mm-hmm. different from them. He was grander. He was grandiose. He wanted to be the biggest and the best all the time. And they had different kinds of aspirations. So, but, but it was them. They, they are the ones who set the pace and the tempo for what came after Absolutely. So, so looking back, what would you say were the three top things that you took away from working with Jack? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I think that the reason that I was able to leave Jack Palladino and with two other people, open an agency that became successful soon thereafter was because I learned from him that you had to persist at all times. Most, many people, as you know, Francie, are not interested in talking to you. They don't want to talk to you. They may even be afraid mm. to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So to persist is of, is, is of utmost importance. To clarify, you know, he demanded that you produce a report that was thorough and that reflected exactly what you had done, what had mm-hmm. been said, what the witness looked like what the witness did. And, and also, it, it wasn't simply bare bones. There was always a part of a report where Jack demanded that you give him the impressions of a witness. And to, to, to win. And winning for him was doing the work properly, getting the witness thinking of ways to get the witness to talk to you. I remember once I went out to try to get a witness. She refused to talk to me. I completely understood why. And I came back to the office and he said, what did she say? And I said, she just absolutely will not talk to me. And, and I was in San Francisco and the witness was somewhere over in Moran up in the woods somewhere and he said well that's not acceptable we need this witness this was early on mm-hmm. in my tenure with him and he said you have to go back and you know she said to me I absolutely will not talk to you I will not he said do what you need to do and so I went mm-hmm. out and I bought a cake a great big old chocolate cake And I went back to her house, and I knocked on the door, and she opened the door, and I put my foot in the door in case, (laughs) and I said, I said, I have to talk, and this is something that I think a woman would do and a man might not do. I said to her, "I I have to talk to you. If I don't talk to you, I may lose my job. If I don't keep this job, I said, I, I need this job. So you have to talk to me. And I, I'm, and I said, and I'm going to give you this chocolate cake because we could sit down and have a piece of cake and just talk for a minute. Bam. That was it. And, I, you know, and I learned a, an invaluable lesson. You probably did, too. You probably did this. But people like it when you bring them things. Of course they do. You know, it, you, I mean, Jack would always say, I want you to take this witness out to supper. That was one of his famous lines. He wanted you to 
get the witness to come and sit down with you, and you would buy the witness a hamburger and a beer, and you could talk. And and um, that's a very humanizing gesture, is really what it is. So, and it's mm. not extortion. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, you probably that is probably something that a woman could get away with that a guy, particularly today, as well. Well, that a guy wouldn't want to do. Right. <laughs> probably That's might true. might not want to. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably there true. are there uh, there there are differences between men and women. Pi's. I I'm thinking it must have been very frustrating for you to try to convert from writing journalistically to writing report, investigative reports. Is that true or not? It was very different. Yes, it was very it, different because when you write a report, as you know, you, you, you have to report back what, what, what was told to you and then uh, some nuance of that, maybe some added comment that might elucidate what was told to you, mm-hmm. a little bit of background. And so it was very different than just writing, just as PI work was very different than just working for a newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, because every case that you had... And this is something that took me quite a while to learn. I was not, I was pretty clumsy at it for a while, but uh, evaluating every witness based upon mm-hmm. where they fit, the, where they fit into the larger scope of the case and where they're going to testify and, and, or was this not, you know, I mean, all of those considerations you have to be constantly thinking about. So um, that's the challenge when you make the transfer from one profession to another. The challenge is, that's why my partner, former partner Nancy Pemberton, one of the many reasons she was so gifted at what she did is because she was a lawyer before she was an investigator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so she was very, it was a very seamless kind of transition for her to go from being a criminal defense lawyer to be in a private investigator because she was very aware of all of the considerations that you have to um, consume as you move along through the process of investigating a case. Yeah, I met uh, Nancy when she was still at the public de- at Federal Public Defender's Office. Yeah. It's been mm-hmm. a couple of years. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and- I just saw her yesterday. I just had it- coffee with her yesterday. She's living up in... She's just, she retired in the last few years, and she's living up in Sebastopol. Oh, nice. And what, and what about Eric? Yeah. You know, Eric is, is still working. He's got his own little business. Yep, in, in Ber- he lives in Berkeley, and he's got, his, he's got his business in Berkeley. Okay. Well, that's, that's great. You, you, guys may, you guys, the three of you... Eric and, and uh, Nancy, and you made a great team. You had a great firm, uh, and you did some pretty amazing cases. We did some amazing cases. Right after we started, within the year, our first year in business, when we were still worrying about whether or not we were going to make it, because none of us had any real money, we all threw uh, a few thousand dollars into a pot um, we got a call one day, this was, I think, in 90, sometime in late 90, and we got a call one day, Nancy got a call one day from a fellow by the name of Carl Douglas, and Nancy and Carl had gone to law school together, and Carl was Johnny Cochran's um, managing partner at his law firm, huh. and Johnny Cochran was about to be hired as Michael Jackson's attorney. And this was at the time when Michael Jackson had a, a, a civil suit had been filed against Michael Jackson on behalf of a, a, a boy. And um, so Johnny Cochran 
told Carl Douglas to hire investigators because he didn't want to use the investigator who had been employed, and that was Anthony Pelicano, who ended Uh up serving about 15 years in prison, if you recall. I do, and it's still there, by (laughs) the way. (laughs) Is Is he still there? I think so, yeah. Oh, okay. So, um... So Carl Douglas called Nancy and said, are you interested in this job? And she said, yeah. So the three of us actually flew down to L.A. for, quote-unquote, an audition with Johnny Cochran. Interesting. And, uh, and I, I'll never forget it because we were ushered into this extremely large and fancy conference room. And we were nervous because we needed the work, you know. I mean, we had all taken a risk going out on our own without uh, the promise of any any client coming with us or one thing or another. We were still kind of putting it all together. And so we were nervous. And Johnny, for his part, classic Johnny Cochran, he, um, he was having his Rolls Royce detailed in the garage of his office building. And the guy who was doing the detailing kept calling into the conference room asking him questions about how he wanted various parts of the car detailed. And that was the only thing that Johnny was really interested in. And at the end of this fairly brief interview, he stood up and he wanted to go down and look at his car. And he said, great, so good, you're hired. And that was it. (laughs) And that was the end of the interview. Oh, that's funny. So we we lucked into that. I mean, it wasn't luck. We, We, thanks to Nancy, we got that case. And we worked. We worked for Jackson for uh, quite a quite a long while, number of years actually. Interesting. And he had, you know, he had his ranch, Neverland. He had a hundred people in his employ. So um, not only did we do some work on his civil suits, and then there was there was a criminal investigation up in Santa Barbara. We worked on that, and that was dismissed. His mm-hmm. trial wasn't until some some years later, and the three of us had long since, you know, uh, ended our our partnership and gone our separate ways. So, uh, but we had a lot of stuff to do on his ranch as well. There was always one thing or another happening. Interesting. But so you spent. I always spent- tell people the first house that I bought in Berkeley, California, was paid for by Michael Jackson. <laughs> That's great. Well, you've also worked on some amazing other cases. I mean, Ted Kaczynski, for example. You worked on the Unabomber case? I worked on the Unabomber case. Nancy Pemberton, again, had her finger on that. Um, Nancy, we were hired to help out with the mitigation work for the death penalty part of the case, which later was dropped. And... The thing that I was tasked to do in this case was to go up to the Sacramento jail and spend time with Ted Kaczynski and try to uh, pull together a list of um, people that he remembered from the years that he grew up in a suburb just west of Chicago. And he had moved there with his family when he was a very young boy and lived there until he went off to Harvard. And that was the piece of the case that we were working on. And um, and the thing that I'll never forget about Ted Kaczynski, well, first of all, the first thing that I remember about Ted Kaczynski is how really debilitated he was mentally. He was mm. brilliant. But he didn't. He, he he didn't. He didn't spend years living in the woods alone and come out in one piece. He certainly wasn't, and it was very sad because um, he just he had so many demons. And he I I don't know. I I assume that he yeah he probably if he had been diagnosed fully, you know, he might have been able to be treated in some fashion. But the thing I'll never forget about him, so I'm sitting there and talking to him. He's a very polite guy, very, very bright. He would draw me a map 
of the neighborhood that he lived in, and he would mark out every house. I'm talking about when he was 10. And when, when I went to see him, he was in his 50s. And he would write down the name of every person who lived in one of those houses. And he would give me all of the details about the family. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, think about that's it. That's amazing. Francie. Yeah, he, that's amazing. It, it, and, I'll, and I'll never forget one day he said, he was talking about the family of this one house that lived about eight houses away from me. And he mentioned, he said there, he was friendly. He didn't have any friends, but he was friendly. There was a little girl. There was a girl who lived in the house. And he said to me, he must have been talking about when he was in the sixth grade, okay? Uh-huh. He said to me, she kissed me. Huh. And, and then he said to me, she was the only girl who ever did. Uh, and I just, it just, yeah, and he he had that kind of recollection and that evocative emotional sensibility. It was somewhat painful, you know, to hear. Mm-hmm. And and I did go back and spend a number of weeks back in the Chicago area, and I, I did find a number of these people, uh, you know, all because of his 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 memory, his recollection. And not only his recollection of where they live, but all about them. So he was, yeah, it was a very interesting case. Very so, sad and, case. And what, and what were their remembrances of him? Were they positive or well, not? Well, it, interesting that you ask. Almost all of them, without fail, said, yeah, I don't really remember him that well. Or, yeah, he was weird. Uh, yeah, no, I don't. No, mm, yeah, that total indifference, and that hence the reason for his one of the many reasons for him being tortured. He was, I, I was, I, I found a guy who was the veterinarian. He had the vet the vet clinic in this town, just just a small suburb just west of downtown Chicago. And he was the town vet, and he lived directly be- behind the Kaczynskis. Mm-hmm. And there was, an, uh, there was an alleyway, you know, separating their homes, but there weren't fences. And this man told me that he used to go every morning, get up and take his dog outside, and he would stand in his backyard, and he would see Ted, young Ted Kaczynski, and his brother David, come out of the back door of their home and come out to the alley and take a left turn and walk down about five straight blocks to their school. And he said every single morning, he would say, good morning, David. And David would say, good morning, Dr. Jones. And he would say, good morning, Ted. And he said, Ted, not once in many, many years answered, ever. Didn't look at him and didn't answer. You know, and here he is recording in his mind all the details about all the people around him, and he wasn't even noticed. That's a sad. That's a sad statement. It's a yeah. sad. It, it was. It's a sad story, and, and and yeah, it's a sad story. Um, so my. You know, that's the thing, when you are a PI, you're, what you take away from people sometimes is different and than how other people see it. And, you know, I always, I always felt very sad about Ted Kaczynski and um, very sad about, uh, very sad, obviously, about the victims of his crime, but such such a um, tortured and misguided soul who so desperately needed sophisticated help and was never able to get it and that was the and that was the consequence of this brilliant mind so uh, yeah it's, it's just uh, but it what it it shows though Jackie is that private investigators, particularly those that are involved in the criminal defense world, 
we have to talk to just everybody. And I can imagine you feeling a little bit of trepidation going to see Ted Kaczynski, knowing the whole history of the Unabomber. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And yeah. So I, I... when you, Go ahead. No, I was just, Go ahead. Go ahead and say what you're going to say. Well, all I was going to say is, you know, in the line of work that we do, knocking on a door and representing somebody who has committed a an act, a criminal act, a murder, um, it's difficult to set that up to have a, a conversation that is not fraught, at least going in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't, we're going to run out of time, I'm afraid, because there's so many things here, but I just want to mention some of the cases that you've been involved in. You worked for the attorneys representing Charles Keating. A lot of people wouldn't remember this during the, uh, the Lincoln Savings and Loan uh, whole debacle in the 90s. You represented Marshawn Lynch with the... Um, regarding the National Football League. Uh, Risa Eslamania was the Billionaire Boys Club, and uh, my friend Sheila oh, yeah. Popper uh, was also involved in that case. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Clint Eastwood. Um, you And, of course, you you worked for uh, Bill and Emily Harris on the Patty Hearst case. Of course, that's totally famous in, in the Bay Area and Berkeley. Uh, so, uh, and then, of course, probably one of the famous ones is working for Gerald Schwartzbach on behalf of Robert Blake. So let's yeah, let's talk about the Robert Blake case because that's still controversial after all these years. Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> it is. It was a it was a pretty excruciating year. I had to move down to L.A. for a year. Jerry and I moved down to L.A. for most of the year. And we had an office. Robert was, he had an ankle, you know, ankle uh, contraption. He was out on bail, and he had a had rented a big house out in the valley, and there was a, a house at the rear of the property, and that's where we had our office. We had a little staff, you know, we had a couple paralegals, and, you know, it was a, it had turned into a massive case because there had been a number of lawyers working on it before Jerry started to work on it. So it was a, it was a mess. And plus, we had, you know, we had to deal with Robert, who was very interested, obviously, and, and also believed that he had a lot of good ideas about how to handle this all. Uh-huh. So... Not only were we dealing with trying to get a lot of work done, but, you know, often I would arrive at the office early in the morning. He would come outside and sit outside and have a cup of coffee, and he would talk about various witnesses. And and he was a, he was a, he was one of the most interesting people I have ever met because he grew up. He was a Hollywood star from the time he was a little boy in The Little Rascals. Uh-huh. So... For me, a former movie critic, it was just enthralling to be able to sit and talk to him about all the people that he knew and knows Mm. and and the stories. For me, it was fantastic. Not so much when we talked about the case, but um, because he was very moody and could be very difficult. But um, it was a very, uh, it was a fascinating case because it, it, it offered a glimpse into the world of Hollywood and the movie industry, and it involved these stunt people. And, you know, he was accused of killing his wife. Mm-hmm. And so the, the trial was very difficult, very, but we got it. He was acquitted. We got a good result. And uh, he, that was as it should have been. Well, and it captured, certainly captured the press. It was, you know, it was in the news every single day for a really long time. Yeah. And Well, and he, you know, and he, he's just, he was a very um, colorful, 
presence, and he always had a lot to say, and he knew also how to work the press. You know, he was he could work the press all the time because everybody always wanted to talk to him because he he seemed to have a lot of interesting things to say. He had a lot of opinions and all kinds of things like that. Well, Jerry Schwartzbach is a great attorney. He did a great job on that. He's he's been on the show, and I'm, I'm sure you read his book. It was it's a great book. Um, yeah, but. So, uh, you know, we've only got a couple of minutes left. <laughs> Jackie, I can't believe it. Loved catching up with you. Um, so is there one case that you would have loved to have worked on that you never got the chance? Um, boy, that's a good question. I I might have said at one time OJ, but that that was uh, that would have been I don't think so because that would have I don't know there were yeah I can't think of anything at the moment really yeah I can't think of anything at the moment I, I mean you know there every so often when something pops up in the news and I think oh that would be interesting um, but I have had uh, the good luck of working on cases that were big cases cases that attracted a lot of media attention and small cases. And I have to say that um, the big cases, as, as glamorous as they seem, are, are fraught. The pressures are mm-hmm. increased. Yes. And um, the delicacy with which you have to approach things is can sometimes be very frustrating. So, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Well, and you're currently working on Scott Peterson's uh, habeas and appeal as well, right? Well, I, I, well, it, it, it's been it, no because it's been filed. But I spent, oh, it's been filed. I spent okay. six, I spent six years working on Scott Peterson's okay. habeas. Okay. And uh, yeah, and so, I must Jack- say that in all the cases, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's so much to talk about, Jackie. We're we're out of time. We have we only have a few seconds left. And thank you so much for being on the show. I so appreciated talking to you. You have such a great history, and uh, thank you. And for the rest okay, of you folks, um, it's PIs declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIs Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com.